From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. If you or someone you care about have problems with atrial fibrillation or a heart valve, you may be exploring your options. Today, I'm talking about these issues with Dr. Stephen Waterford. He's an assistant professor of surgery at Upstate, specializing in cardiac surgery. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Waterford. Thank you very much for having me. Well, I'm anxious to hear about the procedures you offer, but first I'd like to ask you what drew you to the specialty of cardiac surgery. Growing up, did you have loved ones who dealt with cardiac problems? I didn't, but I wanted to be a doctor from a young age, and I was drawn to cardiac surgery because I think the relationship that we have with our patients is a very special one. It's a short uh, time. Uh, but it's a very special uh, experience, and we're often able to restore people to a much better level of health, which is very rewarding. Let's talk about atrial fibrillation. This is a condition that affects some 2.7 million Americans. Can you give a description of what that is? Yes, atrial fibrillation is an irregular rhythm of the heart that predisposes people to have heart failure, symptoms like palpitations and shortness of breath, and ultimately can lead to strokes as well, which is one of the major problems with this heart rhythm. So if people experience those symptoms and come to their doctor, what is done to diagnose atrial fibrillation? One can start with getting an EKG in the office, and that will often show the rhythm. If it doesn't show the rhythm, then people can have a heart monitor, which they wear at home for anywhere from one day to one week. And those often pick up on episodes of atrial fibrillation that are not apparent on a single EKG recording. Now, is this something that's liable to affect uh, older people? Yes, the rate of atrial fibrillation rises as people age. It's related to high blood pressure, sleep apnea, diabetes, uh, and so there's so many reasons people can have atrial fibrillation, but it's really exploding in its prevalence, and pretty soon we're going to have about five or six million Americans that have atrial fibrillation. Is it, uh, Is it equally affect men and women? Yeah, I think it's pretty common with um, both genders. And um, the number one thing that predisposes is just getting older, really. Now, you mentioned that it increases um, the risk of a stroke. Is that why AFib is so dangerous? Yeah, I think it is one of the major reasons. About 20 or 25 percent of all strokes in America are caused by atrial fibrillation. And the strokes that you get when you have atrial fibrillation are actually more severe than an ordinary stroke because atrial fibrillation causes blood clots to form in the heart. And when those move into the brain and cause a stroke, it's actually a bigger stroke than one would normally have from, say, high blood pressure. So when someone is diagnosed with AFib, how urgently does it need to be treated? Is this something that has to happen like that day? Right. I think it varies by patients. There's some people who it's better to try to get out of atrial fibrillation right away. If, for example, you know that it's just started in the last day or so because you can feel it, 
those folks, it's often better to get out right away. For everybody else, it's usually not an emergency, and one can try a, ver a variety of medicines to try to manage it before any procedures are performed. Well, so you mentioned medication. So sometimes medication might be able to control it. Yeah, that's right. So I would say there are really two approaches. One is to try to control the rate, to slow the heart rate down, and that can make people feel better. The other approach is to give medicines that try to actually get rid of the rhythm itself and put the patient's heart back into a normal rhythm. And so there are two different strategies that cardiologists can pursue to manage atrial fibrillation. What are the surgical options that are left? Sure. So I would say that many people go in and out of atrial fibrillation. They're not always in atrial fibrillation. Our word for that is paroxysmal. Those patients are best treated by an electrophysiologist who can perform a catheter-based procedure we call an ablation. And that's successful for the vast majority of people with this form of atrial fibrillation. The second group, though, is people with what we call chronic atrial fibrillation, meaning you're always in AFib. And for many of those patients, it's very difficult for a cardiologist to do a catheter-based procedure to get rid of that type of AFib. And that's where I offer a minimally invasive procedure that can get rid of AFib in our surgery department. Okay, that's and just to describe that very briefly, we offer here at Upstate a procedure called a TT maze. And this is a small incision operation with less than one centimeter holes in the chest. And we place various uh, fancy equipment in through the, those small incisions that get rid of the atrial fibrillation. The advantage of that procedure is that there's no cut in the center of the chest. There's no large cut called a thoracotomy in the side of the chest. We don't stop the heart using the heart or lung machine, and the recovery from that is very quick. And the results from it are that about 80% to 95% have their AFib completely eliminated. Now, how does this procedure actually do the eliminating? Right, good question. So we use um, devices that are called radiofrequency devices that ablate the AFib. And we place those on the outside of the heart. And you can think of those like little heating pens. And these heating pens just burn off the AFib from the heart. The other major advantage of this procedure is we permanently close the stroke center of the heart. So when someone's in atrial fibrillation, the strokes only form in one little neighborhood of the heart called the left atrial appendage. You can think of that like the stroke center. So what we do in this procedure is we place a clip off the stroke center and it's completely gone so that you can never have a stroke from atrial fibrillation going forward. To me, that's about half of the benefit of the procedure is just that you can rest assured that you're not going to have a stroke, even if you don't take Coumadin, Xarelto, Eliquis, Pradaxa, blood thinners. This clipping of the appendage, this clipping of the stroke center, really gets rid of the, the risk of stroke from atrial fibrillation, which I think is very important because in the long run, that's one of the more debilitating things that can happen 
that's really tragic to someone with AFib is to have a stroke that prevents them from moving an arm or a leg or something like that. So walk me through how this is done from the patient's point of view. Is it an outpatient procedure? Sure. So I would say the patient stays a couple nights overnight in the hospital. Uh, procedures around two hours long. You go to sleep at the beginning, you wake up at the end, and you go to a regular recovery room. There's no intensive care. And um, the first morning after the procedure, you walk around a bit. And um, on the second or third day, people will typically go home. And, um, and with pretty feeling pretty good, I think, because there's no major incisions in the chest. Everything's limited to just less than half an inch, all the incisions. And you mentioned that it's 80, 85% effective? Yeah, I would say that the studies on this procedure, first of all, we're one of the few centers in America and, and in the East Coast offering this procedure at the moment. I came up from New York City where I directed an atrial fibrillation program at Mount Sinai Hospital. So we're very fortunate to have this up here for the folks that live in the area. And I would say it's about 80% successful by strict criteria, meaning you have no episodes of atrial fibrillation. If you measure the success by what percent of patients are in sinus rhythm on an EKG in the office, that's 95%. So I would say the clinical success rate is in the 90s. And if you define things strictly, it's around in the 80s. They stay in the hospital for sort of observation for a little while. What are you looking for? Like, what are the common uh, complications that might come up after this? Sure. So some people, after any type of atrial fibrillation procedure, whether it's a catheter-based procedure or a surgical procedure, will have some atrial fibrillation that we get rid of with medicines and cardioversion in the hospital. So that's really the main reason people stay. The other reason is that when we do this procedure, we leave a small little drain in the chest uh, for uh, overnight. So we just monitor that and take those drains out on the first or second morning after surgery. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith. With me is cardiac surgeon, Dr. Stephen Waterford. We've been speaking about atrial fibrillation, and now we're going to turn to the subject of heart valve disease. How would somebody know that they have a problem with one of their heart valves? Yeah, that's a really good question. So some people feel short of breath. And that's really the most common symptom of a valve problem, is that you notice you're not able to walk as far or run as far as you used to. You get short of breath or winded going up inclines or up a flight of stairs. For some other people, their doctor will hear a murmur in the chest, and uh, that's the sign of it. Some people simply feel a lot more tired. And when they eventually get an echo or an ultrasound of their heart, they're found to have uh, a valve that's a, a problem. Now we just spoke about atrial fibrillation. Does atrial fib cause valve damage? Yeah, uh, that's a really good question. So atrial fibrillation stretches the valves, and when they get stretched out, they start to leak. And I would also say the opposite's true, too. So if you have a leaky valve to begin with, over time, about a third of people will develop atrial fibrillation from that. So they really feed each other. Now, I've heard of people who are born with valve defects, congenital valve defects, but 
again, is heart valve disease typically uh, affecting the older populations? It is, and so the congenital defects are fairly rare, fortunately. The most common cause is degeneration of a valve from aging. In the aortic valve, it typically gets tighter with age, and that's called aortic stenosis, and the mitral valve typically leaks, and that's an acquired condition. It can happen suddenly, it can happen gradually, uh, but it's not that the valve was a problem that when the patient was born, it just develops a leak um, over time. So it sounds like all of us are maybe prone to developing this if we live long enough. That's true. In fact, um, in my former practice, we had ultrasounds of all the staff, and we did find um, one or two of the surgeons had a little bit of a leak on their valve. So it's actually quite common to have a small amount of leak, and it's, it's much rarer to have a severe leak, but it's um, not unheard of at all. The heart has how many valves? The heart has four valves, and um, there's two on the left called the aortic and mitral, and those are the ones that most commonly have a leak because the pressures on that side of the heart are much higher. That's the side that pumps to your brain and your kidneys and liver. So the leak is more uh, common than some of the other. You mentioned, I think, stenosis. Is, what is that? Correct. Stenosis just means it's too tight and regurgitation is just a leak. And so the most common in the mitral valve is to have a leaky mitral valve. The tight mitral valves are usually in America from rheumatic heart disease. If you've had rheumatic fever as a child, or even if you didn't know you had it, and maybe had some episodes that you didn't have symptoms from, that would be the most common for a tight valve. But a leaky valve is really the most common in adults. Now, what complications do we see that are caused by these different heart valve diseases? And, and are they dangerous? Is it a threatening condition? Good, good question. So usually it's not an emergency. There's some people that develop a leak in their mitral valve all of a sudden, and that is something that we do operate on as an emergency. But for the vast, vast majority of people, the main problems with the leaking valve are a few. So number one, you can develop atrial fibrillation and that can lead to strokes. Number two, you can get more and more short of breath, even to the point of not being able to lie flat at night. And number three, you can over time develop what's called congestive heart failure. And that's why we've moved in the last 10 years to operating earlier and earlier for these leaks. Because what happens over time is the pump of the heart weakens from the leak and that leads to heart failure in the long term. Is that a difficult decision for a patient and their doctor to make in terms of when to deal with this? Yeah, I think as a, in recent years, it's gotten a bit easier because currently the official recommendation from the American Heart Association is if you have a severe leak on the mitral valve to have it repaired, even if you're not short of breath. Because what we know is that if you fix those valves before people get short of breath, they actually live longer. And the caveat is you want to have it fixed in a center of excellence that repairs these valves. For the vast majority of adults with a leak, you want to keep your own valve. You want it repaired and not replaced with an animal valve or a metal valve. And in my uh, former uh, job, our specialty was repairing the mitral valve. And so that's an area of expertise for me, having trained with um, the person who repairs the most of these valves. 
and the country right now. So my goal is really when I see a patient with a leak to make sure that they keep their own valve, which will last them in the vast majority of cases for the rest of their life and not have to undergo re-replacements of tissue or animal valves. Now, as a layperson, it sounds to me like a repair, you know, keeping my own tissue would be better than having something implanted. But yes. tell, me, tell me why that's risky to have something implanted. Yeah, very good question. So if you put a metal valve in the mitral position, you have to take very high dose Coumadin or blood thinner, and that can lead to bleeding. If you miss that medication for a few days, say you're on vacation, the valve can clot off and you can have a major stroke. And with the animal valves, they do degenerate at about 10 years in the mitral position. So that requires a re-replacement. And the rate of stroke from those valves, while it's not the same as a metal valve, it's probably higher than having your own valve. So really the valve that you were born with is the valve you wanna keep for the rest of your life. If you can, now do, do all patients have the option or are there some that the valve is beyond repair? Good question. So I would say for mitral stenosis, where it's too tight, we tend to replace those valves because those valves tend to have little rocks of calcium on them. But if you've just developed a leak, I would say that the vast, vast majority, well over 90% should be repaired. And if it's what we call degenerative leak, then 100% of those valves should be repaired. Well, let's talk about how you go about doing that. Is, uh, is this a major operation where you open the chest and, and work on the valve? Yeah, it is. We can go either through the front or through the side of the chest for a more minimally invasive approach. And I would say that it's sort of like a plastic surgery on the leaflets of the valve. We reconstruct the leaflets by moving segments around, by removing certain segments. And then also you can think of the mitral valve as a parachute with strings on it. And we'll replace some of the strings on the valve as well. So it's sort of each person's valve is unique. No case is the same. And it's really truly like a plastic surgery on this valve. We inspect it very carefully and tailor each repair to each individual valve. Any patients or contraindications that a patient might have that would make them not a candidate for this type of repair work? Well, I think that in general, I would say that our default option when we see someone with a leak is to repair the valve. Because when you look around the United States at our database in heart surgery, the risk of repairing a valve is half of that of replacing a valve. So the risk of having a problem after surgery in the hospital is about double if you replace a valve. So I would say really that the default should be that we should be in that mode of really repairing valves because it's actually safer for patients that they get out of the hospital and get home in a safer manner. After the surgery, what is the recovery like and how soon does someone get back to their normal life? Yeah, I think for the vast majority of people who have a repair, they're otherwise pretty healthy. So we only expect them to stay in the hospital for five days or so, and then be at home for an additional week recovering. And then by the third week, we really like to have people going out, going to the mall, going to restaurants, and resuming some of their normal activities. What if their normal activities are running marathons or uh, 
doing some other strenuous activities? Yeah, good question. So I would say for us, it's really just a matter of not doing any heavy lifting for around four to six weeks. And apart from that, let's say you want to go for a run, you can certainly do that three weeks after surgery, as long as there's no heavy lifting, basically. Once the valve is repaired, is everything back to normal? Yeah, I think actually some people, you know, what they constantly say when they've had a valve repaired is, you know, I really didn't realize how symptomatic I was from this valve. I didn't realize how exhausted I actually was. Because we have some people that say, you know what, I'm not specifically short of breath, but they have the valve repaired and they have way more energy. You know, they're not napping a lot during the day. They're able to, you know, play their full course of golf. They're able to do things that they, they really realize how impaired they were from the valve leaking. Well, you mentioned people who might have um, had a valve replacement may have to have it, I don't know, redone years later? Sure. So I would say, for example, if we have, let's say, a 50-year-old man, um, we know we're going to have to reoperate if we replace his valve at around the age of 60, which is why we make such an intense effort to repair those valves. Because if you repair that 50-year-old man's valve, he'll likely live with, the, with that valve for the rest of his life. Now, on the other hand, if you replace a valve at the age of, say, 70, it's not as big of a problem because most likely that patient will live the rest of their life with that valve, even if they make it to, let's say, 85 or 90. Because as it turns out, if you, the older you are, when you have your valve replaced, the longer it lasts. So that's an interesting thing. So in a younger patient, they could chew through a, an animal valve in five or eight years. In an older patient, it tends to actually last longer. In terms of someone who has it repaired, though, that's meant to be a lifetime repair? Yeah. So I would say for about 90, 95% of people, that is all they'll ever need for their valve, which is, which is great news about repairing these valves. So for someone listening to this who's facing this or thinks they'll be facing it, um, do you do opinions? Do you do visits with them to assess whether they're a good candidate? Yeah, absolutely. We, um, I would say we're very happy to see anyone with a leak. And really, about a third of the time, we recommend nothing be done, actually. So I think it's good to just touch base with us, and we can follow the valve with an annual ultrasound called an echocardiogram and um, provide that sort of guidance as well. If you do end up having the surgery, um, or do you have to take medications afterward? Well, the beautiful thing actually about a valve repair is we have people take a baby aspirin for three or six months, but after that, you don't, it's your own tissue, so you don't need to take any medicines like Coumadin or blood thinners, um, which is, I think, a major advantage of a valve repair. And after the repair, the patient, uh, they're done with you. They don't necessarily come back and see you every year, right? Correct. And I think that's one of the nice things about our specialty is we get to know people really well for a short period of time and we have um, a really meaningful encounter. But what we do like to see is that people are really restored to normal health. That's really our goal is um, as much as we like you not to see you back because you're really fixed. This has been very enlightening. I, I want to thank you to my guest, Dr. Stephen Waterford. 
He's assistant professor of surgery at Upstate, specializing in cardiac surgery and with some special techniques for heart valve repair and repair of atrial fibrillation. Thank you very much for having me, Amber. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.